The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at SlateGist.com. It's Tuesday, December 22nd, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Occurring simultaneously, we have two main stories about the public and vaccination. One is this. A new survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that about a quarter of Americans do not want to get vaccinated. The skepticism represents a challenge as the country tries to control exploding infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. Too few people want to get vaccinated. The other big story, according to the BBC, is this. Everybody is going for a finite uh, pie. And so it's a, the pie is fixed for now. And everybody wants a slice of it. And there's obviously going to be some jostling and pushing. Too many people want to get vaccinated. That was Dr. Faisal Sultan, Pakistan's Minister of Health, talking about a fairly universal yearning to be vaccinated. In New York State, Uber drivers, public transit workers, hotel workers, chiropractors, teachers, building maintenance workers, some rando who is a Joe Biden elector, and others all say they should be at or near the front of the line when it comes to handing out vaccinations. The Times quoted a lobbyist who represents a school bus company as saying, quote, everyone is chasing the same thing now and it's really remarkable. The need was there and then there's the vaccine and all of a sudden people are saying, oh Jesus, we've got to get in line now. Some don't want the vaccine. Some want it too much. (sighs) What to do? So I'm debuting a new feature called The Gist Take. This is analysis from the GIST Group, LLC. The GIST Group, as you may know, is a consultant to Fortune 500 companies, certain governments, sovereign wealth funds. We charge quite a bit for this analysis. I give you a taste of it free so you know what we're getting. Here is the GIST take from the GIST Group about the people who want it too much and the people who don't want the vaccine enough. It's basically directed at the people who don't want it at all. You people are in luck you're not going to get it. And then when it is your turn to get it, if you decline to take it, well, there'll be a lot of bus drivers and building maintenance workers eager to take your place. Now, if you're wondering, oh my God, but won't this lead to the QAnon community being dangerously exposed? Blessedly, this probably won't happen because when everyone else in society steps up and 75% are immunized, the thing will die out. And the vaccine antagonist will benefit from the decisions of everyone else. Also, let's note, as the vaccine is administered more and proves useful without bad side effects, that 25% number will go down. And maybe just maybe the one skeptical will become the newly pushy. Hey, I drove a school bus to my job as a teacher of chiropractors. I deserve to be first in line. The Just Group LLC analysis, free for now. For corporate subscribers, $10,000 per fiscal quarter. And now, remembrances of things Trump. Remember, this is the roundup of some of the possibly forgettable, quite probably profane, horrible, yet maybe not life-threatening things that occurred under President Trump. In this one, I'm just going to play the tape and I'll pop in with my commentary as the president lays the predicate. My comms people came to me and they said, 
Sir, there's a book or something being written. The president should insist on more specificity from his comms people. By Washington Post people say, you know, it's inaccurate. You know, it's probably a fraud. The Washington Post, by the way, has documented 25,653 false claims the president made during his tenure. The count stopped in mid-October, so we have two months more of false claims to go. Anyway. And they said... President Trump started screaming, ranting, and raving. Now that doesn't sound right. Maybe it is fake news, but go on. That on the southern border, where we are right now building a tremendous wall, it's unbelievable what's going on. Army Corps of Engineers, it's, we're doing a lot. We have, we'll soon have over 100 miles under construction completed. We're going to end up with over 400 to 500 miles. Okay, ready? According to factcheck.org, there are 40 new miles of new primary wall that has been built under Trump and 365 miles of replacement wall. That I wanted a wall, but I wanted a moat. A moat, whatever that is. Not a word I used, but they used it. A moat. The president unfamiliar with the word moat and he's the man to defend us? But moving on. And in the moat, I wanted alligators and snakes. And I wanted the wall to be a fence and I wanted to be electrified. And I wanted sharp spikes at the top. So if anyone gets it, it it goes piercing through their skin, is somewhat the way they said it. Skin-piercing spikes. But I want that whole wall to be electrocuted. Then Donald Trump spent the next minute and a half in this press conference tearing into the Washington Post and criticizing its owner, Jeff Bezos. It's really, I mean, it's a lobbyist. I call it the lobbyist Washington Post for Amazon, and he ought to be ashamed of himself. Now, to this day, there is no on-the-record confirmation that the president actually wanted alligators and snakes in a moat next to an electrified wall. It should be noted, also, that the Washington Post never printed or seemingly pursued such a story or a book. The story was a New York Times story. The book was written by a New York Times reporter, not our Washington Post reporter. One bit of confirmation that we can add is regarding the president's assertion that moat is not a word he uses. He tweeted the day of those comments, quote, now the press is trying to sell the fact that I wanted a moat stuffed with alligators and snakes with an electrified fence and sharp spikes on top at our southern border. Crazy fake news. He did spell moat, M-O-O-T. And this has been Remembrances of Things Trump. On the show today, I spiel about the idea of an American Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But first, we're back to pondering the purpose of it all, the search for meaning. What Michael Scott Alexander has done is analyze great thinkers at crisis points in their lives and try to use their attempt at finding answers to find his own. Did it work? It did. The answer is Rice Krispie Treats. Everybody loves Rice Krispie Treats. I am being told that is not the answer. It's actually not Rice Krispie Treats. You'll just have to listen for more clues as we once more hear from Michael Scott Alexander, author of Making Peace with the Universe. Still looking for the perfect holiday gift? Everything is 30% off at the Slate Shop now through the holidays. Maybe you're a Gabfest fan, a Slow Burn fan, a prudy devotee, devotee, prudy. Maybe you're a gist diehard. Or maybe you and your family just support loving a news organization via clothing. Visit shop.slate.com with discounts automatically applied at checkout.
Yesterday, Jewish studies, UC Irvine Jewish studies professor Mike Alexander and I talked about a few of the disparate figures of history who experienced a crisis of faith, of meaning, of direction at some point in their lives, like jazz great Mary Lou Williams, who kind of gave up secular jazz and wrote hymns and masses, or Socrates, who faced travails by drinking hemlock. Okay, maybe not the best choice. But also there was Genghis Khan and Kierkegaard and William James, all went searching for answers and for something we give the general label spirituality to. In his book, Mike presents these thinkers' words in often their own original language, informed by the language, and I think informed by a very deep knowledge of world religion. So we started this session by my asking him about his field of study and his language skills. Well, uh, I'm actually not a very talented speaker, so everything that I do is, is from reading, um, and it tends to be older stuff. So as an undergraduate, I was trained in uh, Hebrew Bibles, which is, you know, Hebrew and Aramaic, and then for the book, I picked up a little bit of here and there, some of the languages uh, that were sort of necessary to, you know, I did Socrates, so I looked into Greek. I did, uh, there's a chapter on a Sufi, so I looked into Arabic, which is related to Hebrew. And then the, there was some classical Chinese. I'm not a great scholar of those areas, but I did look into them. And I also, we live in networks of people, so I, you know, I got on speed dial with some of my friends for some of it and, and was like, you know, what does this mean? Am I translating this correctly? And so I, you know, I had a lot of support. Right. So the reason I ask is that there are many parts of the book where you essentially examine other thinkers, other philosophies about their conception of things like joy, pleasure, and happiness. And when you engage in this, you will acknowledge, okay, there's not exactly a Greek word for happiness. Of course, you might think of the word, and what is the rough equivalent of happiness in Greek? It's uh, eudaimonia. Okay. So you might think of eudaimonia. And then you'll jump off with an examination and then maybe some analysis of the Greek concept of eudaimonia or the Sanskrit concept of preya and sureya, if that's how you pronounce it. That's Um, right. and And you'll come up with insights. But here is my insight. I think in just contemplating these other languages and their other conceptions of happiness and pleasure... It's doing 80% of the work of philosophy. It doesn't even matter what the Greeks said about it, what Socrates said about it. Just knowing that they had this slightly different way of defining it can lead to great insights. What do you think? Yeah, I'm I'm in big favor of learning from the originals, uh, for sure. And and that, you know, that's what you discover is that basically things are untranslatable. And that, uh, and once you start, you, you can start to get a feel of the text in its own language you kind of enter that world a little bit more in a way that's really ineffable, meaning it's untranslatable. And, you know, I am in in the Department of Religious Studies. I have been drawn to the ineffable for an awful long time. So you really put your finger on one of the big one, one of the big ways in which that's experienced, which is just in the untranslatability of it's, it's not so much concepts. I think that the concepts are quite translatable. We're all, as I said before, we're all human beings and have been speaking languages for a long period of time. You know, I, I'm not a person that overemphasizes the difference between cultures and, and, and says that, oh, you can't understand it at all if you're not a member, you know, of the culture. I'm actually pretty against that. I'm pretty liberal mm. in the sense that all of us should be able to try to look into what one another is saying. But the truth is, is that one another, we're often saying a lot of different things. And so, 
It is great to actually be able to go to the end of the mind in a concept in, uh, you know, wherever that thinker went. And if it was in Arabic, then to do it in Arabic. If it was in German, then to do it in German. Right, exactly. And it must be uh, challenging and exciting. But I come back to your statement that in these other languages, these words, they're ineffable. But you're essentially talking about happiness. And I would submit that As much as we have an English word happiness, and there is a dictionary definition that has a few flavors of what that means, that word in our language, as much as we think we have a shared understanding, A, we don't, and B, we don't even understand it ourselves. So every word is ineffable, even to a native speaker in that language. Uh, it's, you're, to- you're totally right. So basically, I mean, the, the emotions that we have, the, even to, to this day, where I was talking before about the limbic system and sort of the, the emotional center, trying to name what the emotions are is still a psychiatric, psychological debate. You know what you feel, for sure, but trying to name what you feel is its own, you know, problem. And some of these things are extremely deep. So, for instance, it's kind of famous in the in the religious studies literature and also, uh, and I guess in other literature as well, that gorillas have been seen sort of celebrating next to waterfalls, expressing something like joy, like singing and dancing. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like, yeah, so it's something like joy. It's something like happiness. Do they have a word for it? You know, probably, maybe <laughs> they do. But um, so there are these kind of basic emotional things that we, you know, we share with one another and probably with a good deal of animals. And yet getting into the, you know, into the nitty gritty of trying to name it, in a sense, the naming of it actually is uh, is getting into the weeds too much. You know, um, it's uh, you can you can become a scholastic trying to, you know, you know, name all the things that you're simply meant to feel. Yeah. First of all, I hadn't heard that, and it heartens me that uh, gorillas do that regarding waterfalls. I had always assumed they just stuck to the rivers and the lakes that they were used to. So that's a nice nice piece of information. Okay, but let's talk about the naming of it to yourself. Maybe part of our unhappiness is that someone else named the happiness for us or defined it in a way that we don't experience and feel like we can't measure up to. So it does become definitional at some point. I'm supposed to be this way, but I'm not. I don't understand why. It's because someone else defined the word. I think, well, I mean, that's for sure, you know, like sort of, you know, passing billboards on the road, you see these advertisements for Coca-Cola that tell you to yeah. open ha- to, to open happiness. Is that, but you also I mean, know basically our whole capitalistic society runs on the premise of someone else defining happiness for you. Yeah. It, yeah. And a lie. But it's also a lie that, you know, is a lie while you're reading it and while you're sucking down the can of Coca-Cola. It's, you know, yeah. it's pretty complicated. <laughs> Is there a rule of thumb, maybe this isn't an interesting question to people in your world, but oftentimes there are people of all these different religious backgrounds and religious orientations. And, you know, this means they essentially believe in a different God or profoundly different variations of the same God. Is that a stumbling blocker in any way? Is that an interesting thing to dwell on when you're trying to, you know, make sense of what each of them has to offer, like Mary Lou Williams, brilliant, but she believed in some tenets of Catholicism. And Socrates had his own orientation. You know, he was accused of essentially replacing or not believing the old gods. And you have your own orientation. Is that not something you dwell on anymore? Uh, well, I think a lot of people dwell on it and that it uh, it masks the humanity of the insights so that when I talk to my students about this kind of a question, you know, the specificity of religions versus not, 
it's not that they're all teaching the same thing, but you can, you know, when students ask me where they should they turn for their own curiosity, uh, and if they don't have any proclivity, I tell them that it's likely that the tradition in which they were raised in has everything that they're looking for. It's just that certain traditions seem to emphasize certain aspects more than others. In other words, look at the concept of love. Well, I mean, you're going to find that in Buddhism and Judaism and Christianity and in Islam and all of them. But, you know, Christianity really puts it front and center. It's, a, you know, that's, they really emphasize that concept. So I think that the different traditions can emphasize different things, but they all, you know, if you go deeply into any of them, it's just human beings sorting out these essential questions over long periods of time. You're going to find, you know, all the manifestations in essentially all of the traditions. But isn't that just an acknowledgement that, even though religion and the originators, or I guess most devout of the religion, they firmly believe in this superstructure story of uh, who is God, why, who are gods, why does God exist, and what does he want you to do? But that stuff is just, let, let us quickly dispense with that stuff, because the real appeal of religion is the spirituality underneath. It does strike me that there's this huge disconnect between what religion says it's for and wants to do and what it, how it really serves people practically. I think you're absolutely marking a very important thing. And so, you know, in our day, we'd make a distinction between religion, which is sort of the institutional corporate form, and spirituality, which is sort of the individual ex- form and expression. And that a lot of people these days have a big problem with religion, but, you know, want to explore their spirituality. Uh, I think that the impetus for both of them, both religions and spirituality, is the human attempt to just make some order out of the universe and out of the chaos. Religion was the forum in which one turned to find orientation before we had modern therapy. And so that's kind of the kernel of it, I think, um, or one of the kernels of it. There's a community aspect of it that's also important. The personal orientation aspect is really, really essential. But then what might emerge from that in terms of institutions forming and then nationalities forming and all kinds of rules, you know, things can emerge from that very pure and pretty sensible uh, kernel that can become pretty ugly. Yeah. So I told you I was going to ask you to be my rabbi. So rabbi, I come to you with this question. I am not religious. I am irreligious because I see all those stories as just mythological and I can't believe in things that aren't true. It's what I've dedicated my life to as a journalist. It's just a bunch of stuff that, you know, empirically speaking, isn't true. Now, I recognize underneath that there are interesting philosophies and I enjoy reading about theology. But then when it comes to spiritualism, which is something like knowing the facts of the philosophies, but also having some belief in it. Man, am I put off. I'm allergic to, I guess, what the word spirituality has become or Marianne Williams on that, you know, debate stage talking about things other than the import export bank. I want to educate myself and be receptive to ideas, but I'm put off by being asked to believe in the ideas. Should I change the way I think, Rabbi? No, well, first of all, I can't, you know, I'm not actually a rabbi. Let's just make sure because... Oh, yeah, are, no. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Well, people need to know that, in fact, you know, I, I don't have that title. So, um, <laughs> and I can't speak for them. I say that you shouldn't change a, a tittle of what, or an iota of how you think about things. How you think about things is really how I think about things. But this is the issue. We're so that's why about. I shouldn't change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, why... <laughs> 
<laughs> I like you, you like me. Let's keep on going. <laughs> the question is basically, how do you finally know things? And so, mm. you know, of course we have, let's just go through this kind of schematically and quickly. You know, you have sensory data that comes into your system, the things you see, hear, smell, taste, and that's all great and important, but sometimes it's untrue, right? It can be, you know, faulty. And so on top of that, we apply the rules of reason. So, you know, does it make sense that I just saw what I saw? No, I couldn't have just seen it. Therefore, it didn't happen, right? You can apply the rules of reason. But increasingly in the 20th and the 21st centuries, we're seeing that the rules of reason don't work out. They don't reflect reality either, like Schrodinger's cat, like the cat can be in two boxes at once. So on top of just your, your sensory data and your reasoning that you apply to the data, and remember that reasoning was, was founded probably, you know, in our evolution in, in the African savannah of trying to make decisions about, you know, violent situations. It's not necessarily the, un, the, you know, reason is not necessarily the key to understanding all the mechanisms of the universe. It was created under very specific conditions. So on top of those two faulty ways of looking at the world, necessary but faulty, we have another arena, which is our feeling intellect, which really is our limbic system, which is really just how does the world feel to you? You know, know, a lot of the decisions that you make uh, going forward with your life are not really based on sensation or reason, but it's just your kind of your gut. And part of that feeling intellect that you have, I think, and that I certainly have, because I, you know, I know it for me, is that the world has has significance, that it matters. The world feels like it matters. People are born, they die, and that seems to matter. And that even when we drop into kind of a reasonable belief that nothing really matters, that comes with its own weight and feeling of of significance. And so... Our feeling intellect tells us something about the weight and meaning of the world that is not available to us through our senses or through reason. And that's the arena in which religion has been trying to sort of poke around and understand for the longest period of time. People have been thinking about the weight and meaning of the world for a long time, and the spiritual realm is the location where they've tried to articulate that. Now, if you're telling me in the 21st century that you have a hard time doing that, I can under, I more than understand it. I'm with you. You um, wrote a whole book about it. <laughs> I wrote yeah, I wrote a whole book about it. I'm I'm with you. But I I do think that it's hubris to imagine that the you know that the folks over in the psychiatry department have all the answers just because we now have a better understanding of uh, you know, the neurons. But for most people, it's not a question of the neurons. For most people, it's a question of, you know, figuring out the, the meaning and significance for you personally. And, and that's an arena that, you know, people have been thinking about for a long time. Mm. So do you think, given that I express my allergy to the, maybe just the label of spirituality, do you think the concept of spirituality needs a rebranding? <laughs> Desperately, yeah. because <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's not. I know. I don't even think of myself as as a spiritual person. You know, I don't. I, I'm not a person that goes to synagogue regularly. Or, although I do have to say that having written this book, I do have a renewed uh, respect for prayer, and it's something that I I now understand a little bit better. It's not really answering your question, but I'll just sort of go off on that for just a minute. I think that they are kind of reminders of the weight and significance of the universe and and of meaning. They're just, you know, having a simple prayer before food and saying to yourself, you know, this food doesn't need to be here. You know, it the, the universe sort of brought it here. 
and that that's a miracle. And as one walks through life, just to sort of recognize that, uh, you know, the circumstances that are allowing us to live in this moment to exist uh, didn't have to happen. And we know the alternative, which is that they don't happen and that you don't exist. And so just sort of recognizing that, you know, and having a schedule of prayer or at least having kind of moments throughout the day in which you just sort of, you, you, you force yourself to remember that, whether it's washing your hands after you use the bathroom or before meals or, you know, just saying something before a meal is, a, to me, an extraordinary just reminder of the experience of revelation. You know, every moment is just this moment that you, you, we're not entitled to, we can't make or cause to happen. We're just given it like a gift. And, I, you know, and I, and I say this, not Pollyanna, because I am very aware that the world is a mess and people are in all kinds of terrible situations. And yet I have to, you know, say to myself, I know the alternative so often is that it's even worse. It's not to have it at all. And so, you know, even though I'm also a little bit allergic to the concept or the idea of spirituality, I do take some time every day to just just stop and just remember that. Well, listen, I had two paths. I could have uh, consulted a shamanic interpreter about the burnt shoulder blades of a sheep, or I could have <laughs> talked to Michael Scott Alexander, the author of Making Peace with the Universe, Personal Crisis and Spiritual Healing. I chose the latter path, and I'm not going to say that has made all the difference, but it certainly saved a sheep. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> and let's, I'll say a brucha over the sheep for you. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> Mutton again? <laughs> thank you so much. That was a great talk. Mike, thank you. And now the spiel. There's a lot we're going to have to do in order to transition away from the Trump era we go now to the field. First thing tomorrow morning, the maintenance crew will clean all the surfaces with bleach, including the floors, the desks, even get the doorknobs. Well, maybe not that, but definitely one of those intense showers after you've been exposed to the reactor core with a klaxon blaring in the background. Wah, wah, wah. So that's not a great klaxon noise. Maybe it's wah, wah, wah. European klaxon. Sometimes at home, you know what I do? I set the Alexa to klaxon mode just to get used to it. If I ever have to work in a nuclear plant and have to take one of those hosing downs, a hosing, take a hosing. But transitioning from Trump is not only about, here's a political science term, it's not only about getting the stank out, it's about keeping the stank out, making it stay out. So, you know, this process, think of it less like a skunk and more like herpes. I think there is one way to get the Trump out and keep it out, and that's losses at the ballot box. He and his minions can and do manipulate voters' minds and to some extent manipulate voting access to depress the will of whatever minds they can't change. But that winning at the ballot box, that is the only inoculation. There was a loss in 2020, followed by more losses or limiting the gains of the Republican Party in the midterms, and then a loss in 2024 of Trump in the Republican primary, and then the vaccine will be delivered. Now, there are definitely elements to assure or increase the chances of the losses. So it's not just like, oh, we'll beat him at the ballot box and that's it. In order to beat him at the ballot box, we have to make a concerted effort not to give Donald Trump's words widespread coverage. 
like we did when he was president. He deserved it, I suppose, when he was president. But when he's just a guy ranting, treat him like he's just a guy ranting. Democrats have to make sure they run good candidates everywhere they can. But this project is doable. You know, along the way, it's going to seem like it might not be working because there won't be elections for a year and a half. And into that maw will be poured every Democratic anxiety. And along the way, the Biden agenda will seem imperiled at times because Mitch McConnell's going to use the Senate to obstruct, depending on the outcome of the Georgia races, and people will be frustrated, and Trumpy candidates or literally Trump-endorsed candidates will definitely win in a bunch of primaries, and the out party almost always picks up seats in the midterms. So it's probably going to seem that Trump is poised to do well, but we should not lose our minds and we should realize there is still a vaccine, the vaccine can be delivered, and the vaccine is to be Trump at the ballot box. But I will tell you one thing that will not help because it doesn't aptly apply to where we are now. It's this. You know, Yamish, what kind of appetite do you think the Biden administration's going to have? You know, I talked about a COVID commission. I think that's, I think that's likely to happen, something like that. But I noticed the New York Times today called for something. They didn't call it this, but it almost felt like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Is that something that our current politics could allow, ha- allow to happen? A Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This is a fantasy. We should stop talking about it. We should stop hoping for it. And here's why. For a government to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they have got to want to reconcile, and they have got to, if not yearn for the truth, at least recognize it when it punches them in the nose. The United States is not a good candidate for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. To call for one is either overly dramatic or kind of ignorant about the circumstances that cause one to arise. The following countries have had truth and reconciliation commissions. South Africa after apartheid. Argentina after the dirty war caused disappearances, i.e. killings of 30,000 dissidents. Chad after war crimes. Colombia after the civil war. Chile after Pinochet. Pinochet, they call them now. Liberia, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, also Germany, about the abuses of the communist East German state. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission is convened to attempt to get the people to grapple with unspeakable horrors, some of the worst human rights abuses the world has seen. Some countries have convened TNRs to deal with their horrific, sometimes genocidal treatment of indigenous people. The United States had a bad president, a horrible president, who was an ugly bully and also bad at presidenting. We have experienced a right-wing populist blowback. And you know who else did? Britain did with Brexit and Boris Johnson. France did and narrowly defeated Marie Le Pen. Austria did. They narrowly embraced their right-wing populism. It's a phenomenon sweeping the world. Yeah, Trump was really bad. He mismanaged the coronavirus. To suggest a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is kind of an insult to Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, especially because, and this is a really important point, America is in no way ready to reconcile. In all those cases, there were still holdouts, uh, rebels loyal to the FARC in Colombia or the Lord's Resistance Army or whatever purveyors of horror were in power in East Germany. But that's not the situation here in the U.S. There's not just a few dead-enders who are still keeping up arms for the cause. There are millions and millions of people, I'm not going to say most of the Republican Party, but maybe, (laughs) who aren't ready to reconcile at all. One way to look at it 
is that the parade of horribles are still on parade. But I think the better way to look at it is to compare all those other instances to what's going on in America and say, "Eh, it's not so horrible. It could be. We are America. We, you know, think we deserve better than Sierra Leone. But compared to the situations that cause a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to arise, we are far from there yet. Trump was restrained. Trump was defeated. Another aspect to a TNR commission is it usually comes when the populace comes together and demands it, when a majority of the people were oppressed by the system or at least oppressed by a cabal who maybe started off representing the will of the people then quickly didn't. In the United States, a large minority still believes in Trump. A large minority was all he ever had believing in him. It's much different than the amount of white South Africans who still believed in apartheid, right? There were, I'm sure, a high percentage of white South Africans who benefited from apartheid still believed in it. But once the shackles of apartheid were overthrown, they were nowhere near the center of power. They couldn't do anything about it. Same with the number of Germans still loyal to communism. I've been inspired by reading about South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission over the years. The New York Times recently did a report, a Q&A with Pumla Gabodo Madikizela, who is a psychologist on their TNR. She talked about the limits of accountability and the process of healing. A couple years ago, I talked to Martha Minow. She wrote an excellent book about when the law should forgive. And an important point about TNR commissions is that the conditions for their establishment is the clear desire for healing, healing from the fight. Right now, America does not want to heal. One side still wants to fight. The other side would probably define healing as having that first side just give up the fight, which I'm saying they should, specifically in the case of contesting a finished election. But right now, we are not where a TNR commission needs to be. The other thing is, it's not clear who won. Yeah, it's clear Biden won the election. But it's not clear if power has shifted in a lasting way. And until that happens, there really can be no reconciling. Reconciling is accepting your fate and also looking at the past. Republicans aren't accepting it, and they're not even sure that it's past. I have one last hopeful note here. So one reason why the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was needed is that there was no real legal recourse on the scale they were talking about. There was no way to render one verdict or a series of verdict to pronounce one man or group guilty to adequately address the entire decades-long system of apartheid. But with Trump... Now, I don't know how strong the case against him might be or if there is a case at all, but if prosecutors in New York and elsewhere do unearth serious evidence of criminality, it might obviate a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And a 12-person jury of his peers announcing a verdict could be all the reconciliation America needs. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. She's elbowing her way to the front of the coronavirus line, arguing that fair skin puts her in the burns easily high risk group. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He argues he should get an early dose of the virus since his base jumping passion puts him at high risk. Have you seen the statistics? Shayna Roth produces the gist. Now she does. Indeed, she argues that she should be at the back of the line, but local station 1013 The Brew could offer a couple tickets to the front of the line if you know the phrase that pays. 
Alicia Montgomery, Slate Podcast's executive producer, suggests the phrase that pays should be, I'm an octogenarian nurse practitioner. The gist. We don't know if we're going to be at the front of the line, at the back of the line. We just hope there's not an actual line. Maybe they could give out numbers like in the deli. That's a good system. Umpro depro dupro, and thanks for listening.